Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Brian Portnoy, the Director of Investment Education at $100 billion investment solutions provider, Virtus Investment Partners, where Brian strives to simplify the complex world of money in an effort to help investors make better decisions and lead a joyful life. For the past two decades, he has held senior investment, research, and strategy roles in the hedge fund and mutual fund industries at Chicago Equity Partners, Mesero Financial, and Morningstar. Brian is the author of The Investor's Paradox, a book about manager selection rooted in choice theory. His second book, The Geometry of Wealth, hits electronic and physical bookstores this week. 
Our conversation covers Brian's experience in manager research and lessons learned, choice theory and managing expectations, differences between institutional investment and private wealth management, distinction between seeking wealth and trying to get rich, his terrific new book, and why volatility is risk. Brian's insightful take on investing and his journey from the complex to the simple is full of investment nuggets of gold. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Portnoy. Brian, it's great to see you. Good to see you, Ted. Thanks for stopping by. Let's get started with your start in the business. My start in the business is odd. I had a career of sorts in academia. I did a doctorate in political science, of all things, at the University of Chicago. And I could summarize that experience by saying that by 1999, I was both miserable and broke. <laughs> and I was really thinking to myself and thinking out loud to my fiance at the time, like, what do I really want to do? And I did have some success on the academic job market, but I, I simply wasn't happy. So I just wanted to do something else. As I began to talk to people around Chicago where we wanted to stay, I met a friend who was at Morningstar, a guy named Josh Charlson, who's still there today, still a good friend. And he said, you know what? Most of what we do is hire quirky people who are fascinated by the markets, have some writing ability, and we teach them the details that they need to know. And so I went for it. And it was just an amazing culture because it is sort of a quasi-academic culture. There, there are a lot of MAs and PhDs outside of finance. Don Phillips, who really invented the field of manager research, you know, I think he has a master's degree in literature from the uh, University of Texas. But the culture that he built right next to Joe Mansueto, who remains a mentor to this day, it was just summarized what, by what was on the door then as it is now, which is investors come first. People are completely overwhelmed by the amount of information that was available to them. And this was when Joe built this. This was in the early 80s when you would go into a library and look at these mutual fund guides. And so what he built was an amazing culture that aimed to democratize investing. And I was just a cub analyst on the desk. A lot of the friends who I made at the time. I mean, everybody sat in a cubicle. Don Phillips was three cubicles away. Joe Mansueto was eight cubicles away. It was a very flat culture. But Christine Benz and Jeff Patak and Kunal Kapoor and Bill Harding and a lot of folks that are still friends to this day that have gone on to great things were sitting right next to me. And I fell in love with it. I, I first got on the phone with a portfolio manager and asked really the only question I asked for about 15 years, which is, what do you do? <laughs> a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. And just let them kind of dig their own hole by trying to describe a coherent investment process that produced anything of merit. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I was there for about four years. And the culture that I was able to observe and be part of, the people I was able to meet, and uh, some of the skills that I was able to develop over that time, it was fantastic. And it made the departure from academia absolutely painless. What were some of those skills back then? Part of the skill was being able to just get on the phone with somebody you don't know who manages 10 or $15 billion of other people's money and ask tough questions. I had the benefit and the curse of you know having survived about a decade of seminars at the University of Chicago, where if you recall the, the old cartoons where the sheepdog is chasing the fox and they just beat the crap out of each other. 
through the whole cartoon. <laughs> but at the end, the whistle blows and they sort of walk off into the sunset together. That was the Hyde Park culture where I had some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life tell me what an idiot I was right before they bought me beers and told me I was doing good work. So getting on the phone with a mutual fund manager and asking hard questions about what's their process, what do they own, how do they think about risk, how do they distinguish skill from luck, all of those things that I really didn't fully understand at first and, and maybe don't fully understand today, I was trained really well. So you know, just having the confidence to ask hard questions of people who, in most cases, act like they have all of the answers was something that took a little bit of getting used to. But I have to admit, rankling the occasional hottie PM uh, was quite fun for me. You mentioned hard questions a few times. And those you know, examples of process, those seem like the common questions. So what, what is a hard question? Here's a hard question. And I asked it in my very first interview, which is that if you have such a fantastic process, why have you trailed the market over every trailing period for the last 10 years? That's a harder question. Yeah. <laughs> a different way of phrasing it. All right. Yeah. I, I recall that Christine gave, who, who was my editor at the time, starting in, in mid-2000 when I joined, uh, she said, this was the f- harshest first analysis that anybody had done in the history <laughs> of Morningstar. So why did you decide to leave? So I got hired away by a firm called Mesero, which you know well, a really good Chicago institution. And they had a very quickly growing fund of hedge funds. And you know they were just bringing in a large amount of assets in the early 2000s. The big institutional wave into hedge funds began after the 2000 to 2002 drawdown because so many funds, as we've talked about for a long time, were prescient enough or smart enough to be long value and short growth, and they survived 99, and they put up absolutely monster numbers. And so all of the factors that seem to drive really good performance in absolute return strategies, not just long short equity, but in convert arb, merger arb, global macro, and so forth, it was just a perfect storm in the good sense. So unbeknownst to me, until I, I got a call out of the blue from a friend of a friend who was running research at Mesero at the time, Chicago was a global hub for the fund of funds industry. I mean, at the time, you had Glenwood, Harris Associates, Grosvenor, Mesero, and so forth. And it was just really intriguing. It sounded fast-paced. And a part of the story is that after four-plus years of interviewing long-only managers at Morningstar, it got a little bit boring, and I wanted to stretch my legs a little bit. And it was sort of like in Willy Wonka when they're in that really tiny room, and then he opens that small door that brings you into this room with the chocolate river and lollipop trees. It was like, holy moly, that th- this is... This is much bigger and more colorful. Mesero in the industry had a reputation for being sort of due diligence proctologists. Mm-hmm. Very deep dive. Nice to meet you. Very detailed research. And what was it about either what you learned at Morningstar or Mesero or both that translated to this very deep dive to cover all your T's and dot all your I's? I could speak sort of a personal level and then at an institutional level. At a personal level, and something I've thought about as I've tried to grow over the years, is that I, I, I am naturally curious about a lot of things. And when I want to know something, I really want to know. 
And so I was able to express that in one way, you know, doing a doctorate in the University of Chicago, a different way at Morningstar, and then a, a different way again at Mesro. But the underlying passion for asking questions and trying to come up with good answers, it drove me then. It absolutely drives me now. From an institutional point of view, I guess I could say that yeah, at both of those firms, there was an institutional integrity that was un- unflappable. Different organizations, and I've already spoken about Morningstar, Mesro had a, same, a similar attitude. A vast majority of the assets were pension, endowment, foundation. And I think a lot of people, especially during the heady days, I mean, in 03, 04, 05, 06, 07, I think we were bringing in somewhere between one and $250 million a month that we needed to allocate. So it it was fast and furious. And I think there was an appreciation that at that pace of growth, if you're not dotting your I's and crossing your T's, you can get into a lot of harm. Uh, It ends up that we, you know, lost some money in 2008, but not nearly as much as some of our bigger competitors. And I think some of that diligence that was in the culture at the time had something to do with that, because institutionalizing skepticism is something I think is very valuable, but not easy to do. And what year did you end up leaving Mesero? I left Mesero in 2010. We had lived in London for a while because I ran global research from there. And I'll say, I'll make a very long story short by saying that 2008 changed the business. The hedge fund industry changed. The fund of funds industry changed. My role in London and then back in Chicago changed. And it just didn't work out. I mean, I'd been doing it for a long time, and it just felt like it was time to do something else. That's about the time that, call it sort of a low-key midlife crisis, wasn't anything dramatic. But I really began to think, okay, what in the hell am I doing with my life? I, I vividly remember I was sitting somewhere. It might have been right down the street here in New York where I was having a drink before meeting somebody, and I wrote on a cocktail napkin, Who grows up wanting to do manager research? So, you know, I left academia with all this vim and vigor and and had a great great run, but I really began to question what I was doing. And that's when the writing bug bit me really hard because it was an opportunity professionally to express myself and personally sort of just take stock of where I was on my journey. And so you take this experience where you're deeply ensconced in active management doing manager research, long only, and then hedge funds. And you write your first book, The Investor's Paradox. Why don't you paraphrase what that book was about? The argument of The Investor's Paradox is that expectations matter. I went on to a couple other gigs after Mesro, and so all in, over the course of 14 years, I did something north of 4,000 manager interviews. And I don't think there's a strategy on the planet that I didn't do some form of due diligence on. So I I was really blessed to be able to see the entire landscape of really smart, often very well compensated people making just a wide, massive variety of decisions about how to best navigate global capital markets. In my own exploration of what do I really want to do now? What do I want to do next? Where am I going to find my flow? The introspection that I put into sort of what I was doing led me to think about, okay, well, what's really driving success? 
to your earlier question and sort of implicit notion that I'm a little bit anal and, and, and a little bit aggressive at times. <laughs> I actually kept a spreadsheet of sorts over those 14 years of almost every interview that I did, and I tried to keep track of type 1 and type 2 errors. It was another disaster. I mean, you read Malbusan and you read Annie Duke and you read Kahneman and you read everybody on decision making. And, you know, I, I actually tried at the time to think about, okay, am I, am I making good decisions? Am I making good non-decisions? It's impossible to say because you pass on 99 funds for every one that you really dive into. Well, you can't really say whether you're skilled or not if, unless you think about the 99 that you passed on and whether they worked out on an absolute basis and relative to the one decision that you did make. What I concluded after putting a lot of thought and time into it over a couple of years was that true success in investing broadly defined is when expectations map up with outcomes. And I began to realize, not in its fullest fruition, in, in, the, in the second book I explored this, I think, a fair bit more deeply, but I, I began to grapple with the fact that success really wasn't so much quantitatively and precisely about your ability to beat benchmarks or to achieve a ranking in a certain peer group. It's whether you had met client expectations. When I dove into that world of expectations formation, I was immediately introduced to the world of behavioral finance, how choices are made, not only Kahneman, but heavily influenced by a, a book by Sheena Iyengar called The Art of Choosing. It's probably the book that's changed my life professionally and personally more than any other, because she writes about choice, not just in a sterile sense, but she writes about choice and expectations formation as being kind of definitive or even constitutive of the human spirit. So you just don't enjoy the steak dinner. You just don't enjoy the nice vacation. You also, in some cases, more so enjoy the ability to choose the good dinner or the good vacation. Choice is actually a proxy for control from an evolutionary sense. And when we lack control, we are scared. And when we have control, we feel, we feel pretty good. What I realized after 4,000 interviews and 14 years of stumbling around and recognizing that I had made so many awful decisions and a handful of good ones is that the conversation between buyers and sellers of complex investment products often lack the ability, the vocabulary, the skill set to structure a conversation so that both people get what they want from that. So it's funny, you reinterpret what you've written, you know, looking back. And so, you know, maybe at the time, you know, the book was sort of, okay, how do you, how do you pick a good mutual fund or a hedge fund? And now I realize, I think the better version of what the first book, The Investor's Paradox, is all about is how do you structure a conversation between buyers and sellers of anything that's complicated so that you can have a win-win scenario? And, and what I kind of do is set out a set of parameters, almost a script that could be the framework for what that conversation should go by. So I concluded that the whole conversation in a fund uh, research or in a due diligence um, context is that, you know, you're talking about trust, talking about skill, you're talking about risk, and you're talking about fit. Those are four pretty distinct areas where you really want to understand as either or buyer or seller 
what what you're getting yourself into. What is the investor's paradox? Yeah, so the investor's paradox operates on a couple levels. The first is there's a book called The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz, who's a psychologist at Swarthmore. I actually sent him a note as I came up with the title. I, I think the original title of the book was something like Picking Winners. And my agent said, that's just awful. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. So so I read Barry Schwartz's book. And I, at some point, I emailed him to say, hey, I think I'm going to use the, the spirit of your book as the title of my book. And by, by virtue of him not writing back, I took it as negative consent that he was... <laughs> He was, he was okay with that. But the paradox of choice profoundly states that humans are wired to want more choice and more opportunity, but the more choice they get, the more miserable they become. And this is very endemic to Western societies, wealthier societies, where we have more of everything, whether it be in investments or in commerce or in education or in leisure or in technology and across every single domain. And so we have something in life called choice overload or decision fatigue, where you have 24,000 share classes on Morningstar.com. You tell me how many hedge funds there are these days, 11, 12,000, I, I don't know. There's now four or 5,000 ETFs. There were only 50 in 1999. And so we want more and more choice, and we want more and more complicated choices uh, in order to solve what appear to be complex problems. But the more we get, the more uh, overwhelmed we become and the more difficult it is. The second level of the investor's paradox is that the idea is, well, when expectations are met, we're in a pretty good place. And when expectations are not met, we're pretty upset. This is where I got into hedge fund due diligence and alternative investing generally in the book was that because we feel that complex problems of figuring out the global bond market or where equities are going to go or, or anything else like that, you want complex strategies. And we saw both of us in our professional lives, you know, last decade, this literally more than a trillion dollars flow into these complex strategies. We engage in complex strategies to meet complex problems. But the more complex a strategy, the more moving pieces it has, the harder it is to set expectations. So precisely the funds that we think are positioned to do the best for us during complex times are probably the ones best positioned to disappoint us. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we've seen that over the last couple of years for sure. Yeah. So you go through the process of writing a book, you write the book, you publish it. What happens? Crickets. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it, number, number one, the first thing that happens is that I, I, I had a, sort of an unmitigated sense of joy. I, I was actually quite proud of myself. I, I was I wrote the book that I wanted to write. The first thing I was able to do, not only with myself, but with my wife and my kids and close friends and community, was take stock of, hey, this is a pretty cool accomplishment. Like, I did it. So there was that part of it. It, it did go out into the world, and people read it. It sold pretty well. I got a lot of great feedback. I made some new friends along the way. And probably the most relevant or interesting stop or moment along this journey is that there's a guy uh, at the time who I didn't know, a guy named Barry Mandanak, who um, lives here in New York, and, and he's a veteran of the investment business. He's been in the business for, for decades now. He picked up the book at the Barnes & Noble in Midtown. I don't even know if it's still there. There's so few bookstores left. And the title sort of intrigued him, the subtitle, the, the, the Power of Simplicity in a World of Overwhelming Choice. And he liked it so much that he cold-called me. You know, he said, you know, we have some friends in common. 
and reference them. And man, I, I, not only do I love the way you write, but it really seems like we think about solving big, important problems in the same way. I'd love to just have coffee with you at some point. A couple months later, I was in New York and he and I sat down for a 30-minute coffee. And after four hours, he asked me to quit my job at the time. I was working for a, a relatively small uh, asset manager in uh, Chicago at the time, helping them build out a hedge fund platform. And, you know, that was having mixed success. It was kind of fun, but it wasn't great. And Barry said, this is what I'm trying to build at Virtus Investment Partners, who I work with now. It's a $100 billion investment solutions platform. And, and we work with advisors and institutions across a pretty wide array of investment strategies. He had just gotten there at the time in 2014. And he said, hey, maybe come aboard and help me figure this out. I think there's really an opportunity to do right for a lot of people. And Barry's mantra has been and continues to be, how can I help you versus what can I sell you? And I've learned a lot from him. He's a mensch. Generally, he's a mentor. At the end of the four hours, I said, what's the job? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and if we somehow got Barry on the line right now and we asked him, what's my job description? He would probably say, I don't know. But the real blessing is that the firm has really embraced that how can I help you message and given me a blank piece of paper to write, blog, podcast, tweet, speak on really any topic that we think is going to be helpful, number one, for the end client, the mom and pop client of, of Merrill or Ameriprise or UBS or Raymond James and so forth, for, for them to really achieve their financial objectives. And secondly, to help our immediate clients, primarily financial advisors, grow and sustain a great practice. The, the wealth management industry is going through a, a, a ton of really interesting changes now. And so, you know, f nearly four years in, the not surprising part of the role is that I'm writing a lot. I'm creating a ton of content internally at Virtus, which is being shared with thousands of our clients, and, and that's quite rewarding. The unexpected part of it is that as the wealth management business has increasingly embraced content, and honestly, as so much product has become commoditized and it's less of an edge, the ability to bundle content with very compelling product is, is sort of the recipe. And so we think about how do you generate mind share before generating market share. And so now I'm on the road most weeks speaking to a variety of different groups, sometimes advisors, sometimes end clients. Last year in 2017, for example, I think I did 90 client presentations of one kind or another, and I met about 6,000 people. And it's great. You get immediate feedback, and you listen. You try to listen, even though I'm the speaker. I'm, I'm trying to read body language, listen to comments and questions. And a lot of the new book is sort of a reflection on me just listening to what people are truly worried about. If the first book was based on thousands of conversations with portfolio managers and trying to assess what they're really doing. This is a book based on thousands of conversations with wealth advisors and their clients, just regular folks like you and me or our parents or our friends, and trying to write something meaningful for them. So before we dive into the geometry of wealth, which we will do momentarily, you started your career really kind of call it on the institutional asset management side, the institutional allocator looking at funds in a certain rigorous way. And then the last chunk of time at Virtus, you've spent more around wealth advisors, different type of constituent, different type of investment approach. What did you find different in those two ways of thinking about the world? It's a really good question. You have different problems to solve. I would say on the institutional side, 
allocators are very good at creating confusion and problems that don't exist. Such as? Well, the need to do analysis out to the fourth decimal place to what's the Sortino ratio here or the Sharp ratio there, or when this guy says he's got a multi-strat ARB fund, you know, how much is going to be allocated to um, convert ARB versus merger ARB versus event-driven trades or whatever. And that conversation that I tried to speak to in the investor's paradox, it can get out of control, not just because the PM and the salespeople are trying to, you know, sell something. It's also because complexity is a good thing for people's careers in our industry. I would argue that there's not a complexity premium for investors. So generally, the simpler, the better. How to get from complex to simple, kind of, I've realized in retrospect, is sort of maybe the driving theme of the last 20 years of my career. But trying to figure out what an institutional investor wants in terms of the wide array of due diligence documents that they want, it's a very different process. I actually find the wealth management side of the business, which it's funny, like, of course, I thought I knew who Merrill Lynch or Raymond James was, but I had no idea. My first day on the job, I said to Barry, what's a wholesaler? I, I, I didn't know the process, but now I've, I've been into uh, you know, hundreds of branch offices and conferences and stuff like that. The questions that get asked are not as deep. You, know, you could say from one perspective, they're not as rigorous. They're probably wider and not as deep, but they're really quite practically oriented. Basically, I think there's maybe a little bit more of a BS meter on the wealth management side where someone is really busy building a portfolio and managing the portfolio, but also spending a ton of time managing clients and their emotions and their expectations. And if you can't really explain what you're doing in quick, simple terms, then you've got a problem on your hands. So I don't even know if I should say this, but you know, my, my unofficial job description is that I write for people who don't read. Uh, so I've, <laughs> I've, I've tried to figure out lots of ways through the way I write, through the pictures that we draw, through some other measures to try to communicate to people who are justifiably busy and impatient with needless complexity. So let's talk about The Geometry of Wealth, your new book, Hitting the Bookshelves Momentarily, if not already out. What's the concept? The concept is that there's a difference between being wealthy and being rich. I'll say by way of context that this book is a prequel, not only because I'm a total Star Wars nerd, (laughs) (laughs) meaning that I I got to the end of the investor's paradox. And I was, I know at the time, and certainly in retrospect, kind of struggling with what, what does this all really add up to? I remember vividly reading some of Herbert Simon's work from decades ago. And this concept of satisficing, which is kind of a really awkward word for don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that's just a powerful insight. And so, number one, from a personal point of view, as my kids are growing older and I, and I wonder about the decisions they're going to make and the situation and career and lives that they're going to lead, that, that weighs on my mind as, as they grow older. And at the same time, as I'm now in more of a wealth management context than a in the weeds to the fourth decimal place institutional asset management context, financial advisors and their clients and their clients could have $50,000 or $50 million. They're all sort of asking the question, am I going to be okay? Is this going to work out for me? And yes, it matters which investments you choose, but that's actually the end of the story, not the beginning. And so my thought was I actually wrote the wrong book first. So the geometry of wealth ends where the investor's paradox begins. 
The investor's paradox is about investment decision making. The geometry of wealth, you know, to this distinction between rich versus wealthy, I've come to believe that being truly wealthy is the ability to underwrite a meaningful life. Yeah, you described it in the book as funded contentment. Funded contentment. Yeah, that popped into my mind one day. The thing about money is that you can't escape it. It's a really kind of bizarre topic, not the practice, but the, the psychology of money. It infuses almost everything we do, the relationships that we have. And so coming to terms with what the psychology of money is, is, is really, it was more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Because the more I dug, the more I realized that there was a lot going on there. So I had focused most of my career on investing, but I talk in the book a lot about which is what I call money life. And by money life, I mean not just investing, but earning, saving, spending, and then investing. And the four of those together encompass a lot of different activities, a lot of different decisions, and certainly a ton of different emotions. So how can I write something that can help people to lead to a good answer to the question, am I going to be okay? Wealthy is funded contentment, rich is the quest for more. And I could cite you a thousand and one articles from social psychology and other disciplines that show that the quest for more is nothing better than a treadmill. And no matter how fast you run, you really don't get much further. And we, we sort of know that to be true. Nonetheless, in wealthy societies, in American society in particular, which is relatively materialistic, we are all chasing that. We're chasing more money. And so I wanted to really articulate a fork in the road that you can choose to be wealthy and it takes some work. And I set out the path to get there. Or you can sprint on this treadmill and just be exhausted and not particularly satisfied. You don't lay it out like it's a difficult choice. So, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you if you if you choose if, if you choose one of those, I'm not going to be of much use to you. <laughs> and then you take this path yeah. of using shapes, uh-huh. circles, triangles, squares yeah. to walk someone through how you get from let's call it confusion about money to some clarity and, and potentially funded contentment, including, including investment decisions. So why don't, you, why don't we start with the circle yeah. and we'll go from there. It's the leftmost shape in the book. It's also yeah. red. I don't know if that matters or not, but why don't you, why don't you go ahead and, and talk about the circle? Well, you know, I, I made the comment earlier that I write for people who don't read or at least don't read much. So I think it's really important, and on a serious note, to be respectful of your audience is to take them as they are, not, not as you want them to be. And so this was much more clear in the wealth management industry than it was in institutional asset management, where everyone's with their CFA and their puffed chest and their calculator trying to figure out a lot of complex things. Number one, simple is better than complex. Less is better than more. And at a slightly different level, pictures are better than words. So I, like I mentioned, I do a ton of presentations all over the country. My PowerPoints have almost no words in them. Every page is a picture or a cartoon or a photograph that makes reference to a study. And the feedback's pretty positive because if I go back a couple decades to my academic days, I thought that being right was the game and in a very precise way. But now I realize it's, it's something slightly different, which is that you want to engage and empower people as best that you can. So, you know, I began to think about shapes and the contour and the direction of a path toward contented and a fulfilled life 
the path that I draw goes from defining your purpose to setting your priorities to making specific decisions. So what I did with the investor's paradox is that I started way at the wrong end. And actually, the, the investor's paradox is a book about getting rich. I think it's a subtle book. I think there's some interesting points in it, but it's let's make great decisions to make more. This book is not that. And the circle represents that we're going around and around. We set goals. They sound sort of linear. You know, I want to save for my kid's college. I want to retire at a certain period in time. But what's actually happening in our minds is that we're adapting through a process of choice and circumstance. New things are happening, a lot of things out of our control. And we want to take stock as best as possible as to what really matters to us. And so I I have a chapter in the book called What Matters, and I walk through sort of 2,000 years of the history of the concept of happiness, starting with Aristotle and ending with Marty Seligman and, and positive psychology, and focusing on things that really drive a more meaningful life. I make a big distinction between sort of pleasure and contentment. Aristotle made original distinctions with this, and they're still very relevant today. Our day-to-day life is just wrapped up with mood and pleasure versus pain, and we're just wired that way. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just who we are. But in that step back, like, hey, is this the life that I want to lead? Am I leading a good life? You know, I think there's sort of four things that, that I sort of talk about that our dealer's choice, like, okay, I set it out and on your own, Ted or anybody else, like, here's an opportunity for you to think about what really matters to you. And it's not going to be the same recipe as mine. But I think these are the main ingredients. And those ingredients are what I call the four C's, connection, control, competence, and context. So we're social animals. So we want to be connected to others. And that's a deep, deep source of meeting. We want control over our lives. We want a sense of autonomy, not just in the cartoonish Ayn Randian sense that you can do whatever the hell you want to others, but in a more subtle sense that you want to be able to write your own story in the way that you want. And so when you read people like Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl, you get this inspired sense of even under duress, you you can tell your own story. The third C is competence, the idea that you're really good at something that's meaningful to you, whatever that is, your job, your vocation, your hobby, your passion. And then context, which is just that sense of connection to something outside yourself. Traditionally, over thousands of years, that was religion or spirituality. That's still obviously very, very important. But there's your nation, your tribe, your cause, or whatever. And so I wanted people in the context of this adaptive circle to say, okay, these are the things that sort of matter to me. And they're probably going to matter. Different things will matter over time. And part of what we want to do, and to me it's fun, I think for some people it's stressful, is think about, okay, here's who I am now, who, who do I want to be in the future. And the path from here to there isn't a straight line. I think it's more of like a spiral where you kind of, you know, we all deal with a lot of noise and a lot of stress and pain. And navigating that is not only important, it could be super empowering. So we figure out how we define that mission or purpose in the circle. And we move on to the triangle. I, you can I, tell I, I'm loving this. Well, I like the fact that you're adding like this dramatic. I don't know if you like bring sound effects in in, in post production. Yeah, the ex- triangle. The triangle. Yeah, I mean it has a certain Sesame Street quality to it. Old school hip hop, Della Soul. You know, three is the magic number. And the big turn in the book is okay. It's one thing to think big picture by yourself or with your partner or friends walking through the woods. Hey, what the hell am I doing with my life? 
I think where, and I hope the book can fill this gap a little bit. Well, how do you then actually connect that to navigating money life, earning, saving, spending, investing? That's what I'm really trying to accomplish here. And the, the triangle as the step indicates that there's sort of three priorities. So we go from setting purpose, defining purpose to to setting main priorities in our lives. I'm trying to keep the entire narrative at a simple level. You know, Einstein said as simple as possible, but no simpler. I don't get into the weeds on a lot of things because I've learned, especially from my hedge fund days, the deeper you go into those weeds, the more you're lost and the less likely it is you're going to find some treasure that you think is buried down there. And so I refer to the three priorities as protect, match, and reach. In that order? In that order. So the first thing we want to do is develop a mindset and put things in place that protect us from catastrophe. The obvious example is insurance. Now, the book isn't in any way about whole life versus whatever. I I don't... My wife handles that part of our uh, family (laughs) enterprise. I don't know anything about insurance. But the general attitude that managing risk is in many ways more important than trying to achieve more and more a higher rate of return. And so um, Howard Marks has been incredibly influential in the way that I think about this, that relationship between risk and return, putting risk first. But Seth Klarman and many of the great investors you and I have met over time They engage in something that I've now labeled, they want to be less wrong. I think as ambitious people, we want to be more right. We want to be faster, smarter, better, et cetera. That's great. But in the money life that we're trying to manage well, you can easily get over your skis if you try to be more right. To be less wrong means to think about, okay, into the future, where might this get off the track. And I'm not just talking about your portfolio and choosing one fund versus another. I'm talking about lifestyle decisions in terms of what you save, what you spend, decision to have kids, the decision on where you want to live, the vocation that you want to employ. I think a little bit of thinking about risk and what's the potential range of outcomes here can go a really, really long way to putting people in a good spot. I read the line the other day that the best way to manage risk is just not to be there. So I think that's really important. Once you kind of have that kind of less wrong or that protect mindset, I think you can then get into the day-to-day of of financial planning, what I, I call it match. We know from the institutional side of the money management business, there's something called asset liability matching, but it basically means, you know, mapping up what you're spending and what you're saving and how is that going to to go over time. I think a little bit of thinking from a budgetary perspective can go a long way. And then finally is reach, meaning that we're always going to be ambitious. We always want to aspire. But if you put some good thought and planning into protecting yourself from unwanted outcomes, to really thinking about matching what you own versus what you owe, you sort of won the money game at that point, And you can really reach for more. And I don't mean just going and buying a fancy car. I mean, you could be more charitable. You can help out your family. You can help the community. You can do good things for yourself. You can basically spend more on the four C's that we talked about. So it's hard to move from big picture thinking about what really motivates us in life into financial planning. But I think it's really important. And the big trend, I should point out, 
in the wealth management business is this notion of goals-based wealth management. It wasn't that long ago that the advice business was really a brokerage business. It was selling stocks and bonds and funds for, for a nice fee. It's only over the last 5, 10, 15 years that the bulk of the wealth management industry has bought into this idea that people need a financial plan. So I think some of the things, when I say them out loud, they seem so obvious. But the fact is that so many of the clients of wealth management firms actually still don't have financial plans today. Just to have a plan in place, the chance that you're going to have better life outcomes is considerably more than if you don't. And if you translate that over onto the investment side, you had another framework of a triangle. And it wouldn't be hard to say, oh, it's about you know asset allocation, manager selection, security selection. Whatever. But you started the base of triangle with behavior. So yeah, I added a second triangle. I personally find it a little bit confusing, but I, I couldn't get away from it because uh, I am obsessed with behavioral finance. And so once we've defined our purpose, what, once we've set our major priorities, then we have to start making decisions. And what I wanted to do was define for folks, based not just on my observations, but on a lot of research, as to what really drives great outcomes great financial outcomes? And the answer is is threefold. I think first and foremost, it's behavior. It's the decisions we make. It's the most emotionally fraught element of the process because we have to look in the mirror and say, geez, you know what? I've been hardwired to make some pretty bad decisions and I need to think through what I'm doing. That's why I think generally people who work with financial advisors tend to have much better outcomes, not because the advisor is a market guru, but because the advisor can be a coach somebody on the outside saying, hey, you know what, let's keep you from being the worst version of yourself at the worst possible time. It's incredibly valuable. And it's not something that advisors, are, even to this day, are very good at articulating to their clients. And it's something I do on the road a lot where I coach advisors on that element of behavioral coaching. And so behavior to me is the main driver. And then within that, you can begin to get into the weeds. You know, there's classic studies that you know, and I bet a lot of the listeners know, that show that asset allocation is a much bigger driver of financial outcomes, investment outcomes than security selection. I find the argument both theoretically compelling and empirically convincing. One thing many clients, including advisors, don't realize is that we're making this game much harder than it needs to be. So if you appreciate behavior and then you set up a diversified portfolio across major asset classes, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape for a long period of time. The issue is that people start where I started my writing career, which is the wrong place, which is, hey, let's pick the good investments. That does matter. It is important. There are some managers who who are highly skilled and much better than others, and it's worthwhile to track them down but only within the context of a smart portfolio and the recognition that it's your own behavior and transcending your emotional and cognitive biases that are going to get you to a good spot. Okay, so now I've got a big blue square to talk about. This, to me, is the least necessary part of the book. I think the book goes from most important slash most abstract to most specific of least impact. So if someone wanted to read just the circle, great, or the circle and the triangle, good. I I hope they read the whole thing. There's a good reveal at the very end, so they should probably make it through the, the square part. In the spirit of trying to move from complex to simple, I wanted to think holistically. I wanted to basically rethink the investor's paradox. I I wanted to come up with something that was as simple as it needed to be, but no simpler that can really give end investors as well as their financial advisors a really comfortable conversation space to talk about how investment decisions are being made. Because I see on the ground 
every week meeting with advisors and clients that so much of the conversation around financial planning actually is a, a conversation about portfolio and mutual fund selection. And I think I've established that that's backwards. That should be the end of the conversation, not the beginning, let alone the only part of the conversation. And one of my favorite lines of all time, which is supposedly attributed to Mark Twain, but I've, I think I've been disabused through Twitter and other places that almost nothing that Mark Twain was supposed to have said, he actually said. But, you know, there's this line out there that if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. I really work hard explicitly every day at Virtus and in my writing career to, to write shorter letters. And so the square, I think, captures what I think are just the four dimensions of any investment decision, whether you're buying a mutual fund or private equity exposure or some of the complex stuff that you and I diligenced on the hedge fund side back in the day. And I put them, I think, in layman's terms. We want what I call growth, pain, flexibility, and fit. And what I do in the book is is walk through how each of those are dimensions that we should think about. What I provide in the book are specific questions a client could ask of an advisor or an advisor could ask of a fund company to create a win-win situation. A lot of what I've tried to do over both books is create good conversations with people who maybe haven't thought about it exactly the same way I have. And here's a different set of frameworks or different vocabulary. So we want to grow our capital. Um, That's sort of obvious. But how do you set expectations for that? I present some data that shows that, well, you can kind of tell whatever story you want, depending on which data and over what time frame. It's an easy question to ask, okay, what do stocks do over time? But coming up with an answer that's both accurate and helpful is is really quite difficult. So that's the growth piece. I talk about pain, which is my word for volatility. So volatility is some abstract number. I think of volatility in terms of the ability to uh, stay in your seat. The more volatile an investment, the more likely it is you're going to get spooked and bolt. Okay, so I actually, this will be at the the part of the conversation where I say uh, uh, Warren Buffett and Howard Marks have it wrong. Okay, I'm not making a bet, though. I'm just going to state. Keep going, keep going. (laughs) I'm just going to state that the smartest of the smart guys say that volatility is not risk. And I strongly, strongly disagree. Because if you're what you're really trying to do is achieve your goals in life, and the more volatile an investment is, makes it more likely that you're going to drop that investment probably at the worst possible time, it means you're very unlikely to meet your goals. So I think volatility is risk in a very profound sense. And it's our ability, you know, back to that point about behavior being the main driver, that thinking about that pain ahead of time is really important. There's two other dimensions I'll touch on quickly, the other two corners of the square. One is fit, and you know, which I think wonks would just call correlation. But thinking about that is, is easier said than done, in no small part because correlations are unstable. So if you look at sort of the classic dyad between stocks versus bonds and them being supposedly lowly or un and sometimes negatively correlated assets, well, the real answer is it depends. Okay, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, and we need to be prepared for those outcomes. We need to think in probabilistic terms about that. And then the last piece is a technical issue of liquidity, which is a very, very deep and uh, fascinating and complex topic. I refer to liquidity as flexibility, and I put it in terms of can you change your mind? 
Okay, so we're just regular folks. We can't obsess about this. We can't work on this 25 hours a day. If I'm going to get involved in a particular structure, whether it be a mutual fund or a hedge fund or a private equity vehicle or an MLP or whatever the case may be, am I going to be able to move on if I want to? And one shouldn't assume that more flexibility is better. In some cases, the ability to buy and sell something on every tick can lead to really bad outcomes. And so we need to think about sort of the ability to change your mind as a double-edged sword. We know that people who are in target date funds and who are in sort of the institutional or defined contribution share classes of big funds tend to have better behavioral outcomes than those who are in the daily discretionary versions of the exact same funds. And why is that? It's because they can't really change their mind easily. They can change their mind but put two click boxes and a, and a signature box on a screen, and they're probably not going to do it. Yeah, oh, the institutional parallel to that is private equity, right? Yeah. There's a lot of benefits to private equity. There's a lot of risks in the asset class. But at the end of the day, you've taken layers and layers of human emotion out of that potential decision process for a long time. And it's one of the main advantages of, of, of that asset class. All right, so the book's about to come out. And what do you hope happens? I hope it makes a difference in people's lives. I really am privileged to travel the country and meet thousands of investors and, and kind of hear the stories about, you know, what matters to them. And it takes me back to my Morningstar days. It takes me back to that, you know, that sign above the door that Joe put up there, investors come first. And I think a lot of people are intimidated by money. It's sort of the starting premise of the book. It's the most emotionally fraught thing. It's a lightning rod for all of the other things in life that drive us a little bit crazy. It can make good situations bad, and it can make bad situations worse. And so I, I hope people can read this and see through three basic shapes that you can actually underwrite contentment, that you can afford a meaningful life with just a little bit of preparation and, and a little bit of work along the way. I tried pretty hard at various points through a principle that I call adaptive simplicity to say, okay, there might be 15 things to consider here, but I'm not going to talk about 13 of them. We're only going to talk about two. And it goes back to that notion of satisficing. We're not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So I hope people can read this and, and number one, say, geez, I'm not alone. This stuff's hard and it's stressful and I don't want to talk about it. Uh, no one likes talking about this and maybe gives them some tools to, to end up in a better place. Yeah, it's funny. It's easy to sit back and say, oh, you know, in the institutional investment world, we know all this stuff. But Yes, we've talked about this. Like the number of professional money managers whose own personal balance sheet is not quite in the shape it should be is kind of astounding, right? Oh yeah, so it's, it's definitely. We, we, we know a lot of these guys. It's it's a dog's bowl. Yeah, I mean, these are lessons I wish I had as early in my career as I was learning what a hedge fund was. The same same as you, like early on, you you want to learn the right fundamentals for your own life first, and. And we, we have kids very similar ages. Maybe this should have been the first answer. Certainly something I've thought about for years now. But I worry about them. I mean, they're 15, 13, 11, and they're, my wife and I are super lucky to have them. They're just, they're wonderful. And I think they're pretty lucky in the situation that they've been born into. And, you know, sort of the five of us, we're, we're up for a good fight, you know. Like Tracy and I really want them to have happy and meaningful lives. I did write this book in a way where at various points, each of my three kids 
will be able to read it and hopefully make sense of whatever it is they're going through. The book has dozens of Easter eggs in it for various people. I think there's one there in there for you, Ted. And so the book has Easter eggs for, for my three kids at various points, which they'll find probably in a decade or so. And if we accept that 15 to 20 years ago, Google wasn't a thing, and we fold forward 15 to 20 years and, and you know, the conversations you have with certain entrepreneurs, and I mean, the world's so fascinating, but it's also so unpredictable. I think I tried to create a little bit of a, a timeless framework for my kids to think about how to afford a meaningful life long after Tracy and I are gone. Fantastic. All right, Brian, you know what's coming now. So we're going to turn to some closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment? I've been waiting to answer this question for so long because I remember I've listened to all your podcasts. And the first time you asked it, what popped into my mind was Santonio Holmes on his tiptoes with about 30 seconds remaining in Super Bowl 43. I probably rewatched that video and the video of James Harrison returning the interception for 101 yards, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 times a year. Um, It is my happiest sports moment. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I was going to people who are not Pittsburgh fans, why don't you go ahead and explain who these guys are? Oh, I'm sorry. Geez, I I buried the lead. I bleed black and gold. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, Anybody who grew up there or is part of Steelers Nation kind of gets it. We've got black and gold terrible towels every Sunday. Yeah, if you want me to, I could revert into my old Pittsburgh accent, but I'm trying to sound more sophisticated. (laughs) (laughs) What's your biggest investment pet peeve? You know, I think back to the very first conversation I had at Morningstar. So I did 1,002 interviews at Morningstar over four years, and I think to the very first one. And here was a guy who simply could not and would not consider the relationship between skill and luck. Now, I wasn't calling the guy an idiot, and he wasn't an idiot. He was a totally capable fund manager. But what I found, and it does drive me nuts, and it drove me more nuts during the hedge fund days when I was talking to these masters of the universe, guys who were just so smart. But then you break down the numbers and you show that there are various forms of skill and that luck is a big part of it. It drives me crazy that I would say a vast majority of money managers I've met over the years, and it's a big number, simply will not accept that luck is part of the equation. Yeah. I'd agree with you. You agree? Yeah. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that others might not know about? So I read a lot of stuff that our friends are familiar with, economic history, behavioral finance, and I'm kind of obsessed with all of that stuff. I read a lot of political history. In Chicago, I lead a reading group for a big group of folks where we just sort of tackle some of the big issues that are uh, alive in society. But I wouldn't say that there's sort of some sort of micro topic that I've dove into that I have found to be my own little treasure trove. I will say that something I do a lot of that few people know anything about, or at least that I do it, is I play board games. I play a lot of board games. I love board games. And we're not talking Candyland or even Monopoly. We are in a golden age of gaming. There's a gaming store in Chicago down the street from me that has hundreds and hundreds of boxes lining the shelves. And whether it be Dominion, Settlers of Catan, Magic the Gathering, which is a huge multi-hundred million dollar industry, it's a um, game owned by Mattel, Quarto. I mean, we have dozens and dozens of games at home. And my favorite kind, and they're sort of a 
trend toward so-called cooperative games. So we play, you know, Monopoly and I'm trying to bankrupt you. A lot of games now are designed where we're all on the same team, but we have different skills. You know, we're sort of like the A team. You'd be George Papard. <laughs> you'd be the you'd be the leader. Yeah, the big cigar hanging out of my mouth. Yeah, exactly. So, so are you Mr. T then? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I pity the fool, right? No. So um, you're on the same team, and you find ways through collaboration to beat the game. So there's one, for example, that's called Forbidden Island, and the island that you the, the playing board disappears. So it, it's hexagons that intersect. And on every turn, chunks of the board go away because the island is disappearing into the sea. Oh, that's so cool. And so I play this with my kids, and it's a really cool world. And you think about all the different ways that we can have fun competing against each other or collaborating. I I do have a bit of a dream that I'd like to create my own board game one day. Well, I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Okay, George. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I I, I want to flag two because they're both really important to me. The the first is, and I didn't didn't learn either of these until not that long ago. The first one is that we're always selling. Everybody is always selling something. So, you know, I spent many years on the south side of Chicago in the ivoriest of ivory towers, arguing about some of the most esoteric and irrelevant things you could imagine. And the name of the game was being right, you know, um, and, and you dug in and you spent months and months researching just one point so that you can weigh, you know, over somebody uh, who's, who's researching the same thing. That didn't set me up in multiple ways to be successful in the business world. I I think I had some success for other reasons. But this notion that you want to come up with the right answer is one thing. But the bigger picture of, you know, that's not really how people get ahead. What they get ahead with is selling in the good sense, you know, ideas or services or products or whatever that are helping others. And so the ability to engage, the ability to be kind and care and to bring people along, I always sort of knew it, but then I looked around at people who weren't salesmen per se, but they were quite successful. And I realized what they were all doing was creating compelling visions that other, others bought into. I wish someone had told me that. The second one quickly is the principle of optionality, which is something I've thought about a lot in the last few years. And I think about it with my kids a fair bit. The idea that much of success is is not about pointing to the fences and hitting that one home run and walking off the field. It's more about having lots and lots of iterations across multiple games in your life where you're trying to source as many cheap options as possible. Life's pretty random and arbitrary. Things happen for reasons that we can't and won't understand. And so I think a main one of the main ways to be successful is to have relationships, to have skills, and these are all options in a very generic sense, because you just don't know what's going to connect. And that is not something anyone taught me until maybe five or seven years ago. And once a couple folks kind of turned me on to that way of thinking, I've tried to learn more and more about that. Ryan, thanks for coming by. Thanks for sharing your work and everyone go out and buy the geometry of wealth thank you my friend 
Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.